Hey, welcome to, I don't know why I said hey in a casual kind of, I should say, uh, you're very welcome yep. to another podcast from your friends here at Simon Mayo's Books of the Year. <laughs> that felt very formal. I it mean, I think, I think the hey thing hey. does make us sound far younger than we actually are, so hi. I'm up for that. Hey, kids. Also, there's a, there's a Scandinavian hi-hi. Right. Which I quite like because you see that in The Killing. And <laughs> okay. Like and Borgen. Yes. Someone walks in and they go, hi, hi. Hi, hi. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, in Friends, that was the first time I'd ever seen on TV someone walking into a room and saying, hey. Is really? It? And I remember thinking, why don't you just say hello or whatever? But no, no, nobody used to say hey when they walked into a room. And now we all do. Until Friends. Power of Friends. There That's it is. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, today's uh, books on the podcast, which is, as you know, called Simon Mayo's Books of the Year, yes. is The King's Witch by Tracy Borman. They're both historical fiction. Uh, today, Tracy is a top historian. She mainly writes nonfiction, but this is her, her fiction debut. Uh, Amanda Scott has written, she also writes uh, fantastic historical fiction, usually way back many, many hundreds of years ago. Mm. But she's written Treachery of Spies, which is sort of set in the present day and set in Resistance France. You'll hear from them. Uh, in just a moment. But first of all, praise. Yes, please. Where's my praise? If you'd like to write to us and uh, tell us how, how great... fabulous we are. Our email is booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. What an easy email that is to remember. That's booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. What have you got there, Matt? OK, so I've got a very nice review actually on iTunes and we can always do with more five-star reviews, please, on iTunes. Uh, this one uh, says, what I like about Simon Mayo's Books of the Year is that you learn something new every time. Very interesting guests and great questions to get them talking. Brilliant opportunity to plug myself in with a cuppa and escape from the world. It's the first time I've got into podcasts and it gives me inspiration. I feel I have more interesting conversations now. Uh, that, that, that I feel vaguely intelligent when I find someone uh, to talk about that uh, Obama speech guy, which was Ben Rhodes, of course, who was on uh, a couple of weekends ago. Uh, and I recommend that they listen to it too. I am liking your work, smiley face emoji. And by the way, if you, uh, if you do like any of the books enough to want the audio book, uh, we tell you this every week. We've done a deal with uh, those nice people who we've never met. <laughs> <laughs> but we're assuming that they're nice. At audible.co.uk slash books of the year. Uh, if you uh, go and look that up, then what that means is that Audible offer you these audiobooks. Yes, they do. And if you do audible.co.uk slash books of the year, uh, you get a book for free. Yes, you do. Uh, and you sign up to them. You can cancel it any time. There's no sign-up fee. Uh -huh. And if you do cancel it, you still get to keep, keep the free book. And there's tens of thousands of books to choose from, but you can have one for free as long as you go to audible.co.uk forward slash books of the year. Kathy H has uh, emailed. She says, trying to remain sane and civil somewhere in the USA. Simon and Matt, the impetus to actually sit down and write this email is a bit odd. A couple of nights ago, I had a dream in which I suddenly found myself... Uh, in a line to meet you. This is you, Simon. The first thought that went... But no offence, Matt. OK. <laughs> the first thought um, that went through yeah. my head was, oh, now I can tell him how much I enjoy the Books of the Year podcast. Quite right, too. Since a distance of over 4,700 miles, according to Google Maps, makes this dream unlikely to become a reality, I thought I'd better just stop and write to you. When word of the new podcast popped up on my Twitter feed, I had to check it out. Now only two, three or four episodes in... Because <laughs> we can't work out how to number the episodes. I am hooked. Sorry. It has quickly become one of those rare podcasts that makes me truly excited when I see a new episode has popped into the library on my fruit-based device. Hang on, that's one of yours. Yeah, that's a, that's a wittertainment joke, so let's yeah. just say iPhone. Yeah, why not? Thank you as well for inspiring someone who's not a great reader to spend more time sitting down with a good book. Uh, well, that's very nice, isn't it? That's yes. the kind of thing that you need. Uh, Kathy, thank you very much indeed. Should we do another one? Should we, should we get on with the show? Let's get on with the show, Let's I say. Let's get on with the show, all right. And I'm delighted to say that our next authors on our Books of the Year podcast are Amanda Scott, who's written A Treachery of Spies. Hello, Amanda, how are you? Hey, I'm good, thank you. And Tracy Bourne, who's written The King's Witch. Hello, Tracy. Hello there. So, Tracy, I saw you at a books uh, event in Bath. I did, I indeed. Amanda, the last time I saw you was for, oh, well, it was a, a number it of years It was the year ago. 2000. You checked it out. Sorry, mate. What, and what was that for? <laughs> we were both a lot younger. That was for Boudicca Dreaming the Eagle, the first of the Boudicca series. Wow. Long time ago. ago. And this is Matt, and he's just hanging around. Hey. Hello. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> so Matt is going to describe both covers 
All at once. All at once. Okay, so let's start with uh, Manda's uh, treachery. And uh, basically, this shouts out intrigue. Uh, We've got um, treachery picked out in red. And it's basically the dictionary definition, the act or an instance of willful betrayal, an action in which someone betrays their country or a person who trusts them, and the collective noun for spies, a treachery of spies. And then right at the bottom of the page is uh, a woman in silhouette who has a gun and she's walking across a silhouette uh, of... OK, OK, I think we need to stop that because I don't think that's the... This is not the final cover. Uh, is Patsy's, it not? Patsy's got the final cover. Patsy, have you got the book? It's not that, is it? It was oh, very no. good, though, uh, Matt. Oh, it was. Really going so, oh, so it's this one. It. Is it this one? It's not far yeah, That was off. lovely. It was, I, was I was going so well, wasn't I? I know. It was, it was oh, great. Well done, Matt. Oh, dear. So, <laughs> so the, tell, tell us what the cover's like. So the cover uh, is, uh, well, it's dominated by a uh, red title of A Treachery of Spies. And below that, we have uh, the outline of France with two silhouettes. We've got uh, what we're going to guess is an SS officer. And we've got a woman walking away with us with a pistol in her hand. And the, the country of France has got a, a swastika over it because obviously we are in occupied France during the Second World War. Uh, with Manda Scott's name picked out in silver at the top. Okay, that's a treachery spies from Manda Scott. It's a it's a lovely cover, very striking cover. Matt. I'm sure you're happy with that. I really am. Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, Tracy's cover. Tracy Bourbon's The King's Witch. Tell us about that. Okay, so Tracy's cover shouts out classy. Uh, we've got. Are you, say, are you saying that? Well, I'm not saying doesn't. that. I'm not saying that. Right. Here's our rule for whether a cover is classy or not: is if you've got someone on the cover but you can't see their full face. That's, That's always true. and and that is what we've got here. We've got uh, a woman uh, uh, in profile, uh, obviously from the uh, Middle Ages, but we can't see her whole face. Uh, but she's there in red and then in big, bold, gold letters, the King's Witch and Tracy Borman's name beneath it. We should say, just in the interest of equality, that Manda's book is equally classy. It's also classy. Can't see see her face either. So both equally classy. Thank goodness we both passed the test, eh? (laughs) Huge relief. Uh, So, Tracy, we would normally associate you with uh, non-fiction because that's been your specialist area. Plus... Uh, you are the Joint Chief Curator of Historic Royal Palaces and Chief Executive of the Heritage Education Trust. Bit of a mouthful, that. Yes. There you go. So, but, so normally it, it's, it's non-fiction. The, the spark that got you into writing a piece of fiction was what? Well, it's a long-cherished ambition. I read historical fiction all the time and I really long to have a go at it myself but kind of didn't think I might get the chance. And then I wrote a non-fiction history of the witch hunts and the research for that so fascinated and disturbed me, actually, that um, I thought I've got to do something more with this and I, I wanted to give it... I suppose, greater immediacy and really convey the true terror of what it must have been like to get caught up in all of that. And I thought fiction was the way to go. Terror is one of the words that actually your books have in in common and that that sense of chaos, uh, I think, is uh, is common to both. And uh, Manda, I've always associated, as we were talking about Boudicca, with uh, books much further back in time than than this one. So what was the spark for bringing you forward from Roman times and Boudicca times uh, to the present day and also Second World War France? Politics. Um, I wanted to look at how we got to where we are now and I needed something much more, much closer. And I was reading histories. I'm, I'm completely an espionage geek. I was reading histories of espionage and particularly how the CIA grew out of the OSS, which was their equivalent of MI6 in the war. And I thought the guys who were there, they were genuinely heroic. The men and the women who dropped behind the lines of France did things that I could not begin to do. The the courage to just step out of the plane, not knowing what you were going to, was huge. And how did we get from that to the NSA and GCHQ that want to collect everything about everybody and keep it forever? And I really, and I found what I thought was the point where the moral compass flipped. I thought, I want to write that. And my publishers were kind enough not to say, no, you're stuck in the ancient past, you have to be, and went, OK, you want to write about World War II? Let's write about World War II. OK, do you want to... Could you read a chapter? Uh, not a, no, yeah, sorry, read a chapter if you want, but chapter. that will take wow. quite a we'd be here forever. <laughs> just read the entire book. Yes, uh, yeah, g- no g- g- Give us a paragraph, Manda, just to give us okay, a flavour. This is, this is the opening of the prologue. You make a mistake. Trust the wrong person. Take a left, turn at an alley's end instead of a right. 
and it's too late. There are 20 of them and one of you. You cannot outrun them and fear makes you clumsy so that you trip and fall and flail and are stamped on and kicked and brutalised in other ways. It was always going to come to this and as they hammer you into a van and out again, manhandle you up stone steps and down again, you swear that you will spit in their eyes and curse them as you die. Just, okay, it's not bad, that, is it? Read, not the, bad. read the whole chapter. So, Mandy, what you've done is um, uh, you've got a... Well, I was going to say it's a dual timeline, but it's actually slightly more complicated than that. So just yeah, explain uh, explain where we are and who it is that's uh, kind of running your book here. OK. We're in France, um, basically set around Orléans. There is a contemporary thread that runs through it all because a body of a very old woman is found in a car, in a car park, killed in a way that was a signature killing way back in France. And one of the little bits of totally amazing research, you, you know this, when you're researching books, you find a nugget that's in one place and nowhere else. And it was a man who wrote his memoir in the 50s and he had been betrayed in Paris. And he says, Pierre, the man who betrayed me, was already dead because his name had been given to Les Equipes de Tour. And these were young people. He said the, the slimmer and more anemic they were, the more deadly they were. And I thought, that, that, I want that person. Slimmer, anemic, deadly. And all they did was kill the people who had betrayed the resistance. And so their names were not on any lists. They weren't known by anybody else. They weren't picked up in the huge purges when, when whole networks went down. And so I have, and, and they did very specific signature killings. So I have a woman in the present who has died in that way. And then I go back to the origins of how that started, of an agent coming from France to Britain, a woman, who is then parachuted back in to be an agent of the SOE. And then I also wanted the story... I read Leo Marx's book, um, Between Silk and Cyanide, which is extraordinary. He was one of the code breakers in the SOE, the Special Operations Executive Headquarters, in Baker Street in London. And he writes of how it was... To not know you're in there and you're bringing, you're getting codes in, you're getting messages from people who might be dying as they're sending them, or it's the last thing they ever send, and you don't know if it's real. You don't know if the Germans are sending it. You you you're in this fog, with messages coming in, and you're having to try to make things happen in a world that might all be completely being fed to you. And so I wanted the person behind the scenes. So we start in the present day, and then we go to Sophie in 1943-44 and then we go back to 1941 when her handler Lawrence is first kind of picked up and brought in to the special operations executive and then his timeline and her timeline merge together when they join in the Maquis which was the forest resistance of the French in 1944 and then they move together into 1957 and into the present day when all three timelines come together. It sounds really complicated but I think when you read it it flows a little bit more fluidly than that. So, uh, it, so we ought to say, so the the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, that's not the same as the OSS. No, the, the OSS was American, and okay. it was their equivalent of the MI6. Whereas the Special Operations Executive had no equivalence. It was created by Churchill. Somebody said because they wanted to give the Labour Party uh, a unit that had a three-letter acronym, and MI6 and MI5 both refused. And that's possible. But they pulled it together out of a number of different units to be the saboteur unit. It was called the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Conduct. <laughs> and it did a load of things that, you know, real, real gentlemen didn't do. Um, so the other, the other agencies hated it and in the end had it shut down, but not until after the war. So uh, we're in, we're in a, a, a dangerous uh, and a febrile world where you just alluded to codes and code breaking uh, and encryption and one of the many astonishing things uh, in your book is the level of first of all the level of sophistication i mean i'm not a code breaker you know no might do a crossword right yeah. do a crossword every now and again yeah. but it but what you had to get your head round for field. this book um and what these people had to do is is, 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 is astonishing just can, yeah. can you give us a flavor of what the encryption was like and the the kind of puzzles they were trying to put put together. Okay, so the key thing we have to remember is that MI6 had something called one-time pads and they refused to let the SOE use those because they thought they would fall into the wrong hands. So instead, the SOE had to create a system whereby their agents would have a code 
that they understood, a cipher that they understood that hopefully wouldn't be broken. And the problem in the early days, they basically said, OK, you memorise a poem and then what you will do is you send us two numbers, which is the verse number and the line number or some t- and the word number. Um, the problem was people were memorising God Save the King or Hamlet's speech from Shakespeare because they thought that under pressure, that's the only thing they would remember. And the problem is that the German cryptographers, you know, all they had to do was reach for a book of, of English verse and they had it. So in the end, they made up their own poems, which I thought was incredibly clever. And the more scurrilous, the better. The more you were likely to remember it, the better. And then you took those words, you encrypted those words, you then subtracted the letters of those words from the alphabet, you laid out the rest of the alphabet, You each letter had a number, you did that twice, and then you sent a series of numbers in blocks of five back home. And the problem was, if you made a mistake at any part of that, what got home was gibberish. And so the often women at home who had to try and decode these had to try and work out, was this gibberish because the Germans were sending it? Was it gibberish because you were cold and hadn't had anything to eat for three days? Or had you just misspelled God save the king with, with an F instead of a V? Um, and they would do up to 80,000 checks of all the different possible permutations of this cipher because it mattered so much that you not be asked to send it again because sending the same thing twice was going to give your location up. The the average survival time of the radio operatives at certain points of the war was six weeks and so the people at home were really aware of that and were really desperately trying not to let that happen. Yes, and those that were caught suffered... Oh, uh, God, it was horrendous. Yeah. Enormously. Yeah. Uh, Matt, on a treacherous Yes, spies. no, no, I, I love that. And I, I love what you were just talking about there, about, because it always feels to me like the closest I'm ever going to get to being a spy is being able to do cryptic crosswords. That's yeah. it. That's yeah. as close as it's ever going to yeah. be. Um, I, w- I want you to talk more about the forest resistance, because you've alluded the to Mackie. it. Yeah, the Maquis. Because um, I was thinking as I was reading this book that... I don't. There aren't that many pop culture references to the French Resistance. Obviously, we all know "Allo, Allo" and stuff like that. But uh, as I was reading your book, I, I realised there's so much of this I didn't know, and certainly the the the, the Forest Resistance, the Mackie, yeah. I didn't. So, just tell us about these because these were people who they, were little, they, they went into yeah. the woods. They went into the forest. They went obviously. into the woods because quite early, when the Germans moved into France, they they said, "Okay, we need people to run our factories. We're going to take all the men between two age bands, and we're going to." ship them east, basically, into slavery. Um, and in the cities, everybody went, OK. And in the country, they went, you're kidding. And they just moved into the forest, which was dense and thick. And, and when they were lucky, they could feed themselves. But there are stories of groups of young men who lived off onions for nine days. And when they were dying, they went back and, and all their families were shot and they were shot and it was bad. So, but quite early on, a man called Forestio Thomas, who was astonishingly heroic, um, he was called the White Rabbit. He went out and he met with the Maquis and he came back and he said, this is our force behind the lines. If we can feed them, give them enough ammunition, give them the arms, this will be what we need when we eventually invade because everybody obviously knew an invasion was coming. And so very early, a lot of the special operations people were sent to specific Maki groups to help guide them and also because it needed someone on the ground who knew the procedures to draw in the bounty from the skies. And so by 1944, they were well-fed, well-armed, some of them, um, and they were the equivalent of several divisions behind the lines, um, provided they had they were prepared to take orders from Allied headquarters. And that's where the Jedburghs came in, because they were um, people in uniform who dropped in order to be liaison. But then we had that summer of 1944. It was a good summer. The forest was full of bounty. They were living off wild boar. They were getting brandy from the skies and cigarettes and as much armament as they could. And the people who lived through that said it was like they were like gods. They were as fit, physically fit, as it's humanly possible to be. Um, And they had license to kill anything in a grey uniform. And they knew that they were on the right side of history. They knew that what they were fighting for was right. And and they loved it. They, you know, Some of them just spent the rest of their lives. This is how, in many ways, we got the CIA to where we got. They went off and they went to Korea or Vietnam or Afghanistan and tried to do the same again. You know, we're going to ship in some guys to you. They're going to be able to call bounty from the skies. You will fight for us. The world will be a magnificent place. And they forget that in France, they had a Western industrialised Christian nation that essentially had been like us and was going to continue to be like us. And you do that in Afghanistan. And strangely enough, that's how you create Al-Qaeda. So, but in, in the summer of 1944, they were 
just having a ball. It was it was horrendous if you were caught. You know, being caught was still a very, very large possibility. And then they were shipped east and then it was really very bad. But the ones who survived, they, they lived like gods and they loved it. Um, so all of this is the factual background. Into yeah. that, introduce us to just, let's say, a couple of characters okay. who have come out of your imagination who now live in the fictional people, in the, yeah, the fictional people who now live in this factual in this world. So there's Sophie. Sophie is the key around which the, the book, and Sophie isn't a real name. Sophie is the name she's given when she trains with the special operations with, by Lawrence. She's given this name. She's a young woman. She's been a nurse. She's been part of Les Écoutes de Tour, the assassins in, in Paris, and she's found that she has a vocation for killing. And I really wanted to look at warrior women. You know, I'd looked at Boudicca. I'd looked at the woman who became Joan of Arc. And now this was the time when women were sent into war by our armed forces for the first time, sent into combat. And some of them were British and some of them, like Sophie, weren't. And so she's, she is a natural-born killer. She's good at it. Um, she doesn't revel in it, but she's good. But she finds herself caught between the German officer who's on the front cover, Kramer, and Lawrence, who's her handler in Britain, and each of them thinks they own her. That's the point. And she has to make it feel true. This seems to be whenever you read accounts by spies, they say you have to live it as if it's real. So when you're with one handler, you are his. When you're with the other one, you are his. And somehow you have to live that double life without breaking. And what I really wanted to explore was how Sophie manoeuvres that very, very unstable fine line through the war at a point where her patron, for whom she is, feels deeply connected but isn't really in love, is caught and it might be her fault. And she ends up then largely out of guilt, marrying him, caring for him because he has had everything the Gestapo could throw at him, and then moving on through into... I wanted to see the line of vengeance after the polarity flips, after the moral compass flipped. Because one of the other things I found was that I'm sure most of our listeners will have heard of Klaus Barbie, who was the Gestapo chief in Lyon. Who the was butcher of Lyon. The butcher mm. of Lyon. MI6 ran him from 1944 onwards. They sold him to the CIA when the CIA was formed in 47. The CIA got him out down the rat lines to um, Bolivia, where he carried on setting up torture chambers and supporting the right wing over there until he was in his 80s and nobody cared anymore. And they gave him back to the French, who had been trying to hang him from day one. Um, I thought there's a lot of times where the moral compass flipped. But if I wanted one instance, that was it. Who decided it was a good idea to do that? And so Sophie is in the middle of the point where somebody within the story, this flip happens, and she has to deal with the fallout of that. Mm. And in the modern day, she's helped by Inez Picot, who is a modern-day um, police inspector who has her own issues in, in Orléans, because you can't be a police inspector and not have issues. And so she is trying to follow what is a line of obfuscation and fake news and things being thrown at her that are barely true, if they bear any resemblance to the truth, to try and get under what it is. So I wanted to look at the modern woman and the woman in the 40s and see what happens when they, they meet in the middle. Well, it's interesting you should say that, Amanda, because two things or two words jumped out to me as I, as I was reading this. One was chaos and the other was trust. And right. you, you as, a, as a reader, you're not sure yeah. who you should be trusting. Good. You're not sure whether Good. what you're being told it is... It, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> which, which mirrors that, the, the, yeah. the life that, as you say, yeah. Sophie's lead. I, I wondered how much, how seductive that is to be writing, oh, knowing that... What I'm telling you now, you're going to find out in about 100 pages' time. But I don't know that. I mean, I don't know it. That's the thing. I, I'm not one of these people who plans it out. I am Sophie in the moment when I'm writing Sophie, so I'm writing her truth. And I had no idea. I mean, in the edits, obviously, you come back and then you know, mm. OK, you, you just, sorry, guys, this is <laughs> not going to work out quite how you think it is. But, but I think if I don't have that fog around me when I'm writing, you won't have it around you when you're reading. So it's kind of part of the chiselling at the... I'm sure the other writers in the room will know you're chiseling at a rock face and you may think you know where you're going, but you're not going to get where you thought you were going. <laughs> so, so, yes, I think that's the fun of it. That's the, can I live you know, in my safety of my room where nobody is going to gouge my eyes out with a table <laughs> fork, um, but still, can I live on that edge? And how does it feel? And, yeah, that's... So that's were you confident what side she was on while you were writing her? No. No, no, because because I don't think she was. I mean, after a certain point, obviously, I kind of knew where she was. And, and you know, this went through many edits. So after the first edit, then I'm a bit more sure. But 
things change in the edits. No, I wasn't. It, it had to be ambiguous for me as much as it was ambiguous for her. Tracy, did you know any of this uh, this story? Did you know do you know anything of the period? Obviously, you're we're many hundred years previous, mm. uh, and in a different country for the most part. But what, do you know anything of this story? No, not at all. Which made it all the more fascinating um, to read. And and what an amazing premise um, for a book. It leads to so much um, uncertainty um, around around the characters. So much. Tension, drama, horror. I mean, that part of the prologue you just um, read out absolutely grips you in. And and it's that same intensity all the way through. I was kind of pretty exhausted by the end, I must admit, but totally Mm. enraptured and wanted to find out more. And I think, for me, that is the number one um, advantage and value of historical fiction. If you read it and you get to the end and you want to know how much of this is true. Yes. Yes, as I did with your book, we were yeah. talking downstairs. Definitely. So it sounds it sounds as though you found it draining in a good, you know, in a, in good a very way. good way, <laughs> in a good way, exhausting in a great way. Um, I like to be challenged by a book, and and I had no idea from page to page where it was leading, um, and I just think that is such a skill that that Amanda has to. And I was really struck as well when you said that you didn't know because mm. I wrote the King's Witch in the same way. I knew vaguely where each chapter was going to go, but when I, but not yeah. as a whole. And actually it went in a completely different direction yes. uh, to the one that it started in. And so, and I thought actually that was a failing on my part um, and that I should have just known and had it mapped out. But it changed and it evolved. And I think, I think it, it helps if it does that. Why actually. are you punching the air? Because <laughs> I think, because I, you know, we all end up teaching people and, and people come into writing groups thinking they have to have a book nailed down from the start. And I think... The books really live. The books that are most alive are the ones where the characters have taken autonomy or at least some degree of agency and taken themselves off to places that you weren't expecting. And, and historical reality has to impose itself. You know, we we can't lose the Allied invasion. Um, you know, Princess Elizabeth can't die of smallpox in, in Tracy's book. But But around that, having characters that live and take your book so that you're writing it and you don't know where it's going, I think that gives a, a living book for me. Tracy, before you read uh, your opening paragraph or whichever paragraph uh, you've chosen, your your book is The King's Witch. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is the king and who is the witch before we go any further? <laughs> so the king is James I, uh, James VI of Scotland, who became James I of England upon the death of Elizabeth in 1603. So the first Stuart to sit on the English throne. And the witch is Frances Gorges, who is uh, a real person. She really lived, but she's a gift for a novelist because we know virtually nothing about her. Uh, so um, I was able to let my imagination Always fill nice in if you come the across caps. someone like that. It is, because you don't get those letters from readers saying, well, that didn't really happen. <laughs> <laughs> and Gorgie's doesn't sound like a, an English name. Is it Spanish, maybe? Well, um, it's it's several generations English, um, actually, although um, Francis's mother um, was Swedish, but she was uh, a Snackenborg. So she had... Two amazing surnames, really, that came together. Snackenborg. Uh, so uh, this is yeah. Gorgies, G-O-R-G-E-S. Yes, uh, but pronounced like the river. It's sort of Ganges. It's, it's Gorgies, um, as I discovered, having met one of the descendants who still lives in the place where Francis was raised. Okay. So. All right, so so that's the king and that's the witch. So um, give us a give us a flavour. So like Manda, I've chosen a paragraph from uh, the first page of the prologue. The chamber was sombrely lit, with two candles flickering on sconces on either side of the Queen's bed, and hardly more light coming through the heavily draped mullion window from the leaden skies beyond. Neither Francis's herbs nor the lavender strewn on the rush matting around the bed could disguise the sickly smell of decay. The Queen's breath came rapid, rasping, her chest rising and falling in short, jerking movements. There could be little time. So this is uh, this is the end of the Queen. It's the end of the uh, last Tudor, Elizabeth I. So as a Tudor historian, I felt I had to get them in there somewhere. Um, so do, but, and, uh, could you just just as a as a quick catch up, maybe the end of the Tudors, yes. the start of the Stuarts, 
the significance to that is yes. what 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 should we what should we know about that? So um, Elizabeth, being the Virgin Queen, obviously had no direct heirs, no children. Uh, so the Tudor dynasty died out with her. And the great irony is her closest blood relative was the son of her greatest rival, Mary Queen of Scots, uh, James VI of Scotland. And even though it was obvious to everybody who was going to succeed, there weren't really any other viable candidates. Elizabeth refused almost to her last breath uh, to name the Scottish king. And I think um, it was said that, you know, just minutes from death, um, one of her ministers said, will it be the King of Scots, your majesty? And Elizabeth just sort of drew a crown over her head to signal assent. And so it was very reluctantly that she handed over the crown to the Stuarts. OK, so um, where did you find Frances Gorges and, and why, does, why, do we, why do we enjoy spending time with her? What gives her some significance for us? So I found uh, Frances um, in two ways, actually, from my research primarily for my book, Elizabeth's Women, a non-fiction account of uh, the women who influenced and served Elizabeth I. And one of those was Helena Snackenborg. I mentioned uh, Frances's mother. And so um, what I wanted to find was somebody who actually lived, but who lived at the right time. So um, I wanted to start with the end of the Tudors and, and cover the, the early Stuarts. So I looked at Helena first of all, um, as a potential heroine. Um, but then I sort of, the more research I did into her, the more I thought, actually, it's her daughter, Frances, who is the interesting one. And her life spanned just the right time um, for me. But as I said, we actually don't know that much about the real Frances. We know certain dates, um, certain key dates in her life. We know certain places she might have been. But that enabled me to put her in other places where I needed her to be and to explore other characters, mm. real characters, as well as imagined ones. Um, and so it was an absolute joy for me. It was a combination of the sort of non-fiction research I'd done and also for my book on the witch hunts, the non-fiction book on the witch hunts, which just really conveyed the danger of living in early Stuart England. And she's a healer and a herbalist. Is she that is. is that true or is that is that you? That's me. Okay. That's uh, that's imagined. And the reason that I went for that is that um, that would have absolutely put her in the frame for witchcraft. There were a whole raft of things that you could do or be that would have put you under suspicion as being a witch. So for for a start, probably you were female. About eighty five percent of those convicted of witchcraft were female. You'd have had a cat. Uh, you'd have uh, been always. You'd have had a cat. Yes. Always a sign. Always a sign. You know, when you look at it, it's, our image of a witch is very, very similar to the yeah. real thing in the 17th century. But actually, the number one thing that would really have been more dangerous than any other is if you were a healer, if you were skilled in herbal remedies, which for many centuries had been a positive thing. Wise women had been part of communities for many, many hundreds of years. But suddenly now they were synonymous with witchcraft. And so uh, nobody admitted to having this skill um, but Francis has it and she doesn't do a very good job of concealing it so uh, we have so we have a new king coming south yes. uh, with a, a fear or a, a loathing of witches in particular but it is fanned by this uh, unpleasant individual Robert Cecil yes who seems to be either be called my pygmy by Elizabeth or my little beagle. <laughs> Neither very complimentary. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. No. <laughs> and and he's, he's a hunchback and he's five foot and he's a, a nasty piece of work. Uh, this is just me putting my <laughs> editorial uh, into it. What do we need to know about him? Because he's obviously a key player in your yeah. story. So uh, Robert Cecil is the son of Elizabeth's greatest advisor, um, Lord Burley, uh, William Cecil. And uh, and so he's very much trained up by his father and he serves Elizabeth and is ready to kind of take over where his father left off. Um, now, of course, he's not all bad. He's, he's a very clever man, um, certainly very faithful to the crown. Um, but he's also incredibly self-seeking. Um, he's a very dangerous person um, to know, particularly if you are in any way on the opposite side to uh, royal policy. So for Francis, she's not only a suspected witch, she's a healer, but she also comes from a family of, of secret Catholics. And being Catholic is definitely not a good idea at the beginning of the Stuart era, because James soon makes 
it very clear that actually he's going to be even less tolerant towards them uh, than the Tudors were. So Francis is, is in jeopardy as a result of Robert Cecil really trying to enforce the king's will, both his obsession with witchcraft, but also his determination to make England a, a purely Protestant country. And also, this, so it also ties into other history that we do remember, and we we have some kind of recall because yes. the gunpowder plot uh, ties in with this 1605, and it Robert does. Cecil is a part of that. Absolutely. So there were real events. Yeah. So the gunpowder plot actually is, is probably the uh, the centerpiece really of of the novel. So I have. Um, place my narrative around events that really happened, around characters who really lived, as well as some imagined ones as well. Uh, Matt, on yes. The King's Witch. So I'm, I'm really interested in your insight on this because as I was reading, I, I, I found myself asking, why, why are they targeting these witches? Mm. And I don't doubt that there are plenty of people at that time who are very superstitious and believe that these witches exist. However, I also don't doubt that there are quite a lot of people who are using this as a convenient reason for, and it is as you've already said, overwhelmingly women mm-hmm. who are being hung, who are, who are being hanged, who are, who are being killed mm. for being witches. Is there some other driving force? Your knowledge of this, your research behind this, was there another driving force behind this other than we think they're witches? Um, there were several, um, but I think the key one really was James himself at this time because he was personally on a crusade. He believed he'd been appointed by God to eradicate witches um, from uh, from the earth. That was his. He was the witch hunter number one. He wrote a book about it, demonology. I'd kill for his sales figures. It ran into several <laughs> editions. It was a bestseller of its day. Um, and James personally was so passionate, so obsessed that actually he reinvigorated. Uh, a dying cause because Elizabeth had had very little interest in the witch hunts and they were on the wane and there were more cynics than there were believers by the time James came. But then, of course, he changes all of that. If you want to show your loyalty to the king, you're going to show and demonstrate that you believe in this too. And that's why we get the likes of Shakespeare suddenly writing Macbeth, Macbeth the famous exactly that witch play, yes. um, which my favourite bit of pub trivia, he makes shorter than all of his other plays because he knows that James hates the theatre. So wow. there you go. That's a top yeah. top tip for a so pub was, quiz. Because because you say in the book that it's commissioned with James in mind. Absolutely. That Macbeth was written because we want to have these witches. Because you know what he's like with the witches. He loves them. So yeah. and and James his own sort of obsession with witches really stems back to his marriage to Anne of Denmark. So it'd been several years before he became king of England. And um, what really turns the corner for him, he's already kind of willing to believe in witches. But um, when Anne of Denmark set sail to come and actually marry him in person, they've been married in proxy, her fleet gets battered back by a violent storm and she's forced to retreat to Denmark. And so James, in a kind of uncharacteristic and rare show of bravery, decides to go and get her. And then his fleet gets beaten back by um, violent storms and tempests and, and... By the time he finally makes it to Denmark, he is convinced the whole thing has been the source of uh, a bewitchment, uh, that somebody has conspired his death and that of his new wife, that they've whipped up these storms to kill him um, and to kill Anne too. And so he gets back to Scotland, rounds up no fewer than 70 suspected witches for bewitching his fleet, and there it all begins. Uh, Francis witnesses uh, a hanging. She does. Uh, of a healer, uh, which which is a very upsetting piece, as indeed it, sh- it should be. But it, it was almost as though you, you'd witnessed a hanging uh, here, Tracy. I don't know. I was going to say good, but, you know, in, in the sense that I wanted to convey the, the <laughs> yes. horror. Uh, and so was that eyewitness accounts as to yeah. the colour that someone turns and what happens when, when yes. you're being hanged? You know, the research for for this book took me to some really disturbing places and and there are very vivid accounts from the time of of witch hangings but I also had to you know kind of do the internet research as well and sort of the 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 kind of medical view of actually what happens to the body when uh when it's suffocated when it's when it's strangled it's just yeah it's horrific and so I was able to kind of take those the historical and the and the kind of medical, contemporary medical view of what happens and, and weave them into that quite disturbing scene. But, it, yeah, it had to be, and I wanted to convey the horror, and, it, and that was all part as well of really uh, making it clear who Francis 
needs to watch and the person she needs to watch is Robert Cecil because he has her marked and that's why he takes her to Tyburn to watch this um, this hanging um, because he's looking for her reaction and he's baiting her and uh, it just becomes more and more claustrophobic for Francis from then on. Yes, and there's a brutality to your book, there's a brutality to Manda's uh, book as well. They're both very... Uh, uneasy books and we we turn the page wondering who's going to be betraying who next uh Amanda did you know about Robert Cecil and Francis Gorges I mean I think we know a bit about the witch trials and so on but was this a new period no, of history no yes I, I like everybody else I knew little bits about Cecil because I knew little bits about Elizabeth Tudor but I didn't know about the transition from the the Tudors to the Stuarts in this way and I certainly didn't know about Francis and the the herbalism and the things, it, I find it amazing. We always, or we tend to, because I had a medical background, think that herbalism was superstition. And now I know a little bit more about it and I read what Tracy's written and realise these people knew an awful lot. Actually, the level of medicine she was practising would work. It's it's good. It's good stuff. But And then there's this extraordinary... And I wanted to know how much of James's obsession was just misogyny, because he's obviously mm. gay. He doesn't like women. Is this just some kind of projected misogyny? I think it absolutely is. And he was raised very much to to equate um, witchcraft uh, with the female gender. Yes, and absolutely. even his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, he kind of was raised to believe she was a witch. So it was all absolutely rooted in misogyny. And um, and so that was one of the driving forces, not just for, um, for James, but actually across the board. Mm. Um, you know, it, it was a hatred of women, it was said, as well as witches. How much of this was a a kind of reflex to the fact they'd had a woman as a queen for quite a long time. I think it serves them right. now and wondering if that's what's happening. Exactly, but it serves the English right because there was great rejoicing when they knew that they were going to get a king at last. They'd had 50 years (laughs) of female rule. And then James very quickly proves a grave disappointment. He, you know, he arrives in London uh, from his progress south and, and it's raining and he complains that the rain is wetter than it is in Edinburgh and he's got a heavy cold and he's kind of sneezing over everybody and he dribbles when he drinks and he fiddles with his codpiece, quote. Um, and, and so, <laughs> so, suddenly, so we know that he did that? Yeah, he, we know he, he, he's mate. said to have been forever fiddling with his codpiece, <laughs> according to one source. Oh, lovely. And so Goodness suddenly <laughs> everybody is harking back to the glory days of Elizabeth and bringing back the Virgin Queen and Gloriana and and we quickly learn the lesson that actually it's not all bad having a female ruler. And also I, I, I want to talk about Frances and her role um, Amanda's touched on her role as a healer because as, as we've said some of the things she's a lot of the things that she's doing are working and yet they're seen as mm. you know uh, witchcraft that, that, that kind of thing but the fact is that at that time physicians had no clue what they were doing. It was leeches, it was blackadder. Yes. It was leeches, and if it's not leeches, I haven't got a clue, sorry. It so was, and it was. they were still working according to the, the theory of the four humours, so they would drain you of blood for certain things or, you know, um, try and drain you of phlegm for other... It was terrible. Um, and yet the wise women, the healers, were incredibly skilled. And, and part of my research for the book took me to uh, the Royal College of Barber Surgeons, where they still have a, a Tudor herb garden. And talking to the curator there... Um, just really made me see how effective these remedies were. You know, they are the um, origin of many modern drugs. Um, and, and so they knew that, they had the knowledge, they were effective, and yet suddenly it was turned on its head and was one of the things that was equated with witchcraft. And it's such a, a, a damaging thing that it was because people either had to resort to physicians but most couldn't afford it or, you know, they... they died because of this because it's, yeah it's, it's so interesting that you've got these physicians that are held in such high regard and are ineffective yep. against these wise women who are you have a very good chance you're a witch uh, and yet they are effective they are effective and so it is it's crazy how it turns on its head and, and we knew that they were effective for centuries and we almost forgot that knowledge when suddenly in the mid 15th century the pope puts out this edict where he says witchcraft is is you know the number one evil in society we need to hunt it down and then he mentions that healers are are part of this because they they're kind of um they're messing with the body they're messing with fertility they they're meddling in things that they shouldn't and so suddenly everyone is suspicious of them and even though they've been this force for good that's very quickly forgotten i i did i did find that i quite wanted sophie from uh manda's book to just spend a little bit of time in your book 
Tracy, just to sort out a few people. Oh, <laughs> I would love, oh, to love that. Just Robert, Robert made Cecil, it. meet my friend Sophie. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come and pick the pieces up later. That would be great. That would be marvellous. Okay, we can yeah. do that. She, she'd have worked Short her story. way through. Yeah. Yes. Um, you've both written historical fiction in very different periods. I wonder, Amanda, is it different knowing that your story is uh, with us now? and that the relatives of the people that you're talking about or the people who you're representing, their story is very much part of France's story now. Yes. It, did you feel there was a sense of, I need to get this right, I need to be careful? I need to be careful. Also, I need to make up a lot more than I had done because if somebody writes to me, you know, in all caps on an email saying that they're Boudicca's direct descendant, I don't really need to take that much notice of it. This <laughs> We've moved on a little bit from there. Yeah, yeah. And, but if somebody is... You can't libel the dead, but if somebody is the son of, of one of the people who was in the resistance in France, perhaps, who was captured and who may or may not have given everything to the Gestapo under torture, I did not want to be the person saying, you know, your father or your mother did this. So I invented a, a, a town. I invented all the people are a little bit like an, an agglomeration of the people that I read about. So it's the first time that I've ever written anything where I could meet people and go, is this how it was? which was amazing and, and really inspiring, but also much more careful in how I wrote it, yeah. Sure. You always, when you were growing up, you always wanted to be a spy. I always did. If you'd known any of this stuff, would you still have wanted to be a spy? I don't know. I think reading John Goldsmith's book, the one about Les Equipes de Tour, because he describes uh, seeing somebody fall from a high window and this guy had jumped and he jumped because they were gouging his eye out. Mm. And that was the moment at which I think I realised I wasn't going to be a spy. Yeah. I think it's quite clear that there is, a, you know, and there is an appropriate level of violence in 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 both of these books. And uh, Tracy will counter that with the witch pricking and uh, the devil's mark, which is which is a terrifying. St- and it is. Uh, what is your plan here, Tracy? Are you going to go back to to writing nonfiction? Are you going to stick with uh, this idea of carrying on telling us well, our stories? Um, I, both. Um, so the King's Witch is the first of a trilogy, and I'm already halfway through writing the sequel, so I'm very um, happy to be continuing uh, the story. But I'm also continuing with the non-fiction, um, which I absolutely love. And um, and so I'm kind of writing them in parallel, which it should, sounds chaotic, but it kind of works. And, and I enjoy it because non-fiction, obviously, it's very much based on the sources. Um, but sometimes there are frustrating gaps in those sources, and then I can switch to the fiction and make stuff up for a while, and it's all great. Um, yes. So I'm enjoying doing both in parallel. I feel very lucky. Amanda, what, if, what are you going to turn your attention to next? Um, there's, a, there's a sequel to this um, that I've sketched out, but I haven't started writing. Um, I'm writing 2084 because I think um, it's time that we looked forward. I, I think we're in one of those crisis times where it would be useful. If we can't change the narrative that we have of our world, then we aren't going to change the world. And I think we're at that kind of point where it would be a really good thing if we could change the trajectory that we're on. So I would like to write something that might just nudge us a little bit towards a a slightly less destructive trajectory. Are you writing dystopian fiction? I'm. It's not all dystopian. Um. It's it's not entirely. Why are you writing dystopian? No, 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 no. You no. <laughs> have that sort of view. I just trod on your. your no, 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 not at all. I was just because you spent so much time, you know, centuries in the past. Yes, in the past. That you've had enough of the past. Let's do yes. a bit of. Bit of yeah, the I don't think it has to be dystopian, but it has. I think I'm trying to write something that is, again, on a on a fine line between being dystopian, but also painting a potential of what could be good. Because I think if we don't have a picture of where we could go that would feel better than where we're going, then we won't be able to get there. We need the roadmaps, but we also need to see where we might veer off. So that. Okay, yeah. so uh, that's 2084, and that might be when it comes out. Who knows? Oh, goodness. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, could, could easily, yes. So Amanda Scott's new book is A Treachery of Spies, and Tracy Borman's book is The King's Witch, uh, both completely recommended, fabulous reads. Tracy, Amanda, thank you very much indeed. Thank you thank so you. much. Two fascinating uh, authors, historical fiction, but completely and utterly different with that element of chaos. The, the best thing about those is always that it, there are so many little facts dropped in there as well. I, uh, when you, whenever you're reading historical fiction and you go, that, that is so outrageous, it couldn't possibly be made up. Yep. And, of course, it never is. They've, they've taken that from history, which is amazing. Uh, some recommendations, which we always ask you for. If you want to email uh, and get in touch with us, we would really, really love to hear from you. Julie Gibson, 
who's a postie, local councillor and uh, Everton FC season ticket holder. Never mind. <laughs> Matt's Liverpool, by the way, in case you didn't know. Uh, your podcasts are the first ones I've ever downloaded, says Julie. It makes me wonder what I was missing when I always meant to, but never got around to download the Confessions podcast. Anyway, different times. Favourite fiction book this year, Tony Kent, Killer Intent. I was gripped all the way through, read it in two sittings. Favourite non-fiction book this year, Cheer Up, Peter Reed. Oh, there's a shock. By Peter Reed. <laughs> Everton season ticket holder. Yeah, I wonder you how that got You get Peter on as a guest. The banter between the three of you would be priceless. Anyway, keep up the good work. Best wishes to you both. So a couple of recommendations, Julie. Thank you. Yes, Amanda Pierce from Verwood in Dorset says, just thought I'd pop you a note to say how much I'm enjoying your new podcast. I spent a lovely afternoon in the sunshine listening to your latest show, which was thoroughly entertaining, although, Simon, I nearly sprayed myself with pims in laughter at your bros comment. Uh, this was use. <laughs> how you managed to talk about you introducing bros at Wembley. Uh, yes. Keep up the good work, chaps. I look forward to the next one heart emoji that was slightly surprising it was it? brilliant i loved it uh, gary fletcher uh enjoying the podcast can you please do a review of graham norton's new book a keeper uh, wow yes well we are going to do that yeah and i think, I think so. he's going to be uh, on in october yes because I, I remember reading his, his well, the book before this one, which was very, very good. Um, and Sue Barley, uh, hi, Simon and Matt. Uh, as it's the NHS 70th birthday, I thought it would be pertinent to mention This Is Going To Hurt by Adam Kay. Uh, it's set on a labour ward. The book is depicted from Kay's personal diaries and tells the unadulterated truth of life as a junior doctor. The long hours, endless days, sleepless nights, life and death decisions. Kay manages to go through from being hilarious funny to gut-wrenchingly sad at the drop of a paragraph. I found this honest, hilarious, politically worrying at times and heartbreakingly poignant, more than worthy of becoming uh, Sunday Times Humour Book of the Year and also being made into a BBC Two production. Keep the series going. We love you both. Oh, thanks very much. We uh, love you. And Joe Gillings, Matt and Simon, uh, I'm hoping you'll be getting Anthony Horowitz on. Uh, at some stage. I've just finished his latest James Bond book, a prequel to Casino Royale. It's called Forever and a Day and is Bond's first proper mission as a double O agent. Plot-wise, it flies along, borrowing quite a lot from the Live and Let Die movie, which I assume was originally borrowed from a Fleming story. Uh, if you were doing a list of Bond requirements, then you can tick pretty much everything off here. Monte Carlo, Casino, Exploding Factories, Chases, Fine Dining and Henchman, A Beautiful Girl. We learned why Bond has his martinis shaken and not stirred and why uh. he is 007 and not another number. Anyway, all in all, good holiday read, but I doubt they'd make a movie out of it. Uh, anyway, Joe Gillings and everyone else, thank you very much indeed for getting in touch. We are at booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. That's the email. Please get in touch. Tell us uh, what you think about the show. You can review us on iTunes as long as it's good. Don't put bad stuff up there. You can just email that to us. Only five stars, please. And uh, if you want a free audio book, it's audible.co.uk slash booksoftheyear. Uh, no sign-up fees or anything like that. Thank you also for the... Uh, for the young writers, we've been asking yeah. you to send in uh, stories, not big amounts, just you know, a couple of paragraphs of uh, unpublished work. Maybe uh, it's a child you know, maybe it's your next-door neighbour, maybe if you're a teacher you've seen it at school. Uh, we'd just like to get some stuff out there, and we have had lots of it. We'll put them in our next podcast. Uh, the email is the same. You can tweet us at Books of the Year, but you can email booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Uh, Matt, thank you very much. Before we go, we should just say that uh, in the next podcast uh, that we do, there'll be a little kind of uh, short one full of uh -huh. fippery. Yeah. Uh, but Michael Calvin is going to be on. He's You're a particular fan. I love Michael Calvin's work. And this latest one is as good as you think it's going to be. Okay. It's very good. I said fippery. I meant frippery, obviously. It was obviously. Silent R. Yeah. Uh, and also Melvin Burgess, who... Uh, He's been writing astonishing books for ages, and he, on the cover of the book it says The Godfather of YA. My guess is he's not going to want to be introduced as that because he's just a great writer. OK. But anyway... Well, there's nothing wrong with being called The Godfather of something. That's, no, that's well, pretty good, isn't it? We'll find out in, oh. our, in our next full podcast. OK. Thank you for downloading. Tell your friends. Tell your friends.